0: From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox Talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more, this is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson.
1: Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of September 13th, 2021. On this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast, we recap the Battle of the Sox series, as the Chicago White Sox played in three straight one-run games. The good news, they won two out of three, thanks to some big-time hits from Luis Robert, Yasmani Grandal, and of course, Lurie Garcia. Is Jim's non-crackpot theory holding more water as time progresses that Garcia hits better while playing shortstop? We'll discuss that and the better news that the White Sox full-time shortstop, or at least the starting shortstop, Tim Anderson and Lucas Giolito, are returning this upcoming Tuesday against the Angels. What should we expect from them in their return after seeing such impressive starts from the regulars who have missed time? But there are still some concerns, even if the Chicago White Sox have a 12-game lead with 19 games left to go in the regular season. Craig Kimbrell is still having difficulties holding on to one-run leads. How much do we trust Kimbrell in late-game situations? We share our thoughts in a moment. We'll also answer your questions in P.O. Sox at the end of the show. Joining me now is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis, and hello, Jim. Maybe your non-crockpot theory about Luis Garcia is not so crazy. Back-to-back <laughs> games with a home run? Including the walk-off homer on Sunday.
2: Yeah, that was the the power was the one thing that had been missing from his game, you know, over the last uh, few months. Like he'd had, uh, I guess he replaced power with more plate discipline. The walk rate had spiked, that uh, the batting average had rebounded, but the homers, the surprising power trips that he went on uh, randomly and sporadically, were just kind of muted and replaced by. a Uh, a ground ball rate, a uh, a double play rate that is the highest of his career. So it was you know, just if you want to be greedy, I suppose you could have asked for more power. I chose not to because I figured everything else he was doing was good enough, especially with Anderson out and the work he'd been doing instead. But seeing the power come back. uh, Yeah, now it feels like I was underselling him almost a little bit by seeing him homer in consecutive days and uh, homer on an 0-2 count uh, after two outs. I'm not sure if that was... Uh, Garrett Whitlock uh, letting his guard down after uh, getting Jimenez and Grand all out but yeah that was a really pleasant way to end a weekend and uh, I don't think there's any better way uh, for him to end his stint as the everyday shortstop you know maybe unless it was like a grand slam or something like that but otherwise uh, I think you basically have to tip your cap and Say, job well done. And then, uh, you know, as Anderson comes back, try to figure out how to keep him involved. Manager Tony La
1: Russa after the game, said that Lurie Garcia is not a utility player. He's a regular, everyday player who just plays different positions. Which, to me, is still a utility player. I think that's
2: super utility. <laughs> I think that's when super comes in, <laughs> but you know, we thought about, you know, I think we talked about it earlier in the season, especially when Garcia was struggling and getting all that playing time that La Russa does love himself a utility guy. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I remember Skip Schumacher, I think was the ultimate uh, Swiss army knife in his arsenal when he was the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals. So I think we saw that he wanted Garcia to be that guy for the White Sox, maybe a little bit too much at times based on how much he played and, how little confidence Garcia seemed to have in his own swings, just on, on how often he bunted and gave himself up in at-bats. They just weren't competitive. But now I think we're seeing pretty much the best possible Garcia, and he's rewarding the faith that Larusa had in him, either whether it was faith in him or whether it was just managerial tendencies, you know, all roads leading back to Garcia playing a lot uh, between the injuries and and Larusa's own tendencies. But however it worked out, he's really putting a fine stamp on the season. We got this tweet to us from our friend Greg Nix, and Greg
1: asked us, should Luis Garcia be the starting second baseman over Cesar Hernandez come the postseason?
2: Uh, I was thinking, like, maybe he should be starting shortstop and Anderson plays second based on you know, my theory that he plays best <laughs> uh, you know when he feels like he has to live up to Anderson standards versus, like, Danny Mendick and company at second base. But it's it's possible just based on if he's... If he's going well um, and, and, say, like, Angle's back and, or Vaughn is back and past his leg issue and the outfield's full and DH has, uh, you know, somebody worth playing, like, might be possible. I mean, Hernandez hasn't shown a ton. So, uh, you know, between defense, I don't think Hernandez is that much better at second than Garcia, although he is a little bit better. Uh, and just the uh, impact of Hernandez's bats really is, uh, you know, There's just not a whole lot there. Like, he's just hitting a lot of ground balls on the right side like so many other White Sox players are. So, he's really kind of exacerbating a flaw in the lineup. So, should Garcia continue rolling into October and Hernandez is just meh, uh, I don't see why not. You know, Hernandez really isn't a fixture. I don't think he's earned that status with the White Sox. So, you know, should there be a hot hand... Uh, Garcia, I mean, Garcia played under worse circumstances last year in Oakland, uh, coming off a thumb injury and barely playing at all of them being thrust into the outfield. So this would be the superior way to play him in October. If that's the way it happens.
1: I disagree on the defensive part went between Hernandez and Garcia. I I think Hernandez is a much stronger defender at second base. than Garcia. But,
2: but I think he's prone to lapses that I think, uh, just shake confidence a little bit. Like his, his metrics, you know, I, I, when he came to Chicago after the trade and his metrics were all really down, uh, compared to, um, you know, his gold glove work from 2020. And I was looking, you know, at, at, uh, you know, various, uh, you know, articles and, and blogs, uh, like, uh, covering the corner with the formerly let's go tribe covering the corner. I was mm-hmm. kind of digging into their archives, trying to figure out what his problem was and just said mistakes. Um, you know, the. Just more, you know, I guess, inexplicable mistakes than he'd made uh, previously, and we'd seen that, you know, in a few games. He had the three error game. He had the uh, dropped uh, or or fumbled double play exchange. He just had some some moments here and there that make you realize, that, oh, that's why his metrics are really are kind of haggard this year. So that's why I'd say, like, you know, Garcia is, you know. Worse. You know, our Hernandez is better. But when it comes to, like, Hernandez being— or Garcia being hot versus Hernandez being kind of a non-entity at the plate, I think I would rather play this version of Garcia uh offense and defense versus this version of Hernandez offense and defense and maybe use Hernandez as a defensive replacement.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
2: And then, you know, maybe, you know, move him to second base and then have Garcia go to the outfield if need be. Okay. I don't
1: necessarily agree with that idea, but okay, I understand
2: where your line of thinking is going. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and we know a lot can change with Garcia over the course of three weeks. He can you know get cold again, and this isn't a discussion, right. but should this Garcia somehow last for another three weeks? Yeah, it's worth revisiting. Yeah,
1: because you would be playing the hot bat, and when you get into the postseason, you really just have to play the hot hands. As we saw last year with Randy Rosarena, somebody catches on fire, you need to have them in your lineup every day because they're playing with a lot of confidence right now. Yeah. So yeah, if Garcia continues to hit like this and he's on a roll and Hernandez continues to hit like he has been, the simple answer is Garcia would be starting at second because he's just got a lot more confidence at the plate right now than Hernandez.
2: Yeah, and just between walks and the occasional pop that Hernandez isn't showing right now. I mean, his OBP is below 300, his slugging percentage with the White Sox is below 300. Like, yeah, I think Hernandez does have to prove himself a little. Well, that's
1: the Lurie Garcia, and it'll be interesting to see where Lurie Garcia is going to be playing on Tuesday because with Garcia hitting now 361, 385 on base percentage and slugging 611 in the month of September. He's not going to be playing shortstop because on Tuesday, Tim Anderson will be returning to the White Sox his first game since August 28th. Lucas Giolito will be making the start on Tuesday. We'll chat about Giolito later in the show. So with Anderson back, what should be our expectations, Jim, since we've seen how hot Luis Robert and Yasmani Grandal have been hitting since they missed time and they have returned to the lineup?
2: Well, you know, I guess the heartening thing is that Anderson played well uh, around his, the games he missed. Like, it was hard to tell based on the games he saw that anything was wrong. Uh, the only thing he, telling us that he had some kind of issue with his legs was the games he didn't play. So I would hope that he would be able to come back and, and summon the same force, but uh From what it sounds like, you know, based on what Larusa said before the game that Anderson will be back, but he won't be back all the way. He'll be getting more days off. They'll be kind of playing it by ear or playing it by leg, (laughs) depending on, uh, you know, what's uh, doing the talking or or what they have to listen to. But it, it sounds like, you know, Garcia won't be done with shortstop automatically. Yeah, I, I think you're going to see him maybe every other day while Anderson comes back or depending on what they want to do with Romy Gonzalez to see if you know, there are some at-bats to mix him in. Like maybe it's kind of a rotation between the three of them or maybe like you know 2-2-1 two, two, and one in order to get Gonzalez at-bats to see what he might have to offer uh, over the last two weeks. But there's going to be room, I think, for Garcia to keep playing every day between uh, Anderson having uh, leg issues and Vaughn having some issues with his legs in the outfield. But yeah, I I think Anderson, I'm hoping that's just going to be, you know, sporadic playing time, or at least um, I shouldn't say minimal playing time, but measured playing time, and hopefully production while he's doing it.
1: We had this conversation last year regarding who is the White Sox future leadoff hitter. I know Tim Anderson is going to be batting leadoff on Tuesday and every game that he's in the lineup and throughout the postseason. This year, and manager Tony La Russa won't think twice about that decision, Jim. But Luis Robert is hitting 378 with a 391 on base percentage, slugging 533 in September. This may be a hot take. Robert is a better hitter than Tim Anderson. Robert has the most talent on this roster. So let's talk principle.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Should Anderson remain the leadoff hitter, and merit more plate appearances than Robert at this moment.
2: Well, I would say that when it comes to the leadoff discussion, like I can see using the batting order or reordering the batting order as a way to maybe spare Anderson a little bit. Like, yeah, you know, I'm wondering if it's a matter of him using his legs and wanting to take some stress off him while keeping him active. Like, I wonder if it makes sense to the bottom of the, bat him at the bottom of the order when he comes back, not so much because, you know, he, you know, Robert has usurped him uh, in the leadoff spot, And all of a sudden there's no room at the end and he has to bat at the bottom of the order, uh, you know, alternating with Sebi Zavala or what have you. Like it's not an insult, more of a matter of, you know, if we want to have Anderson come back and and get in the groove, but we don't want him to exert himself too much. Does it make sense to have him bat, you know, th- four times in the game versus five or three times a game versus four, just to have one, uh, fewer trip around the bases potentially, and and have fewer. Uh, I guess yep. You know, over the course of a couple of weeks, he might have like you know a handful of opportunities uh, spared from him having to you know give a max effort on the base paths or try to go from first to third or first to home or steal a base. Like I, that's kind of one thing that's rolling around in my mind is with Robert performing well, that does give you the luxury of being able to move Anderson down the order without creating a crisis.
1: See here, I thought you were going to say, Josh, you're absolutely crazy. Let's move on to the next topic.
2: No, I think given the health concern (laughs) and and given how they're talking about him and given how careful Rusa says they have to be with uh, getting carried away with playing time, like that's just one thing that kind of occurred to me is just, you know, if they want to spare him, there's ways to spare him by playing him every other day. But even when playing him during games, that'd be one way to lessen his load.
1: Yeah, because just looking at the 2021 numbers, walk rate, strikeout rate, bab up, ISO, weighted runs created plus, Luis Robert has better numbers than Tim Anderson. And I'll go ahead and get out in front of this. My 2022 lineup for the White Sox would have Luis Robert batting leadoff, Yohan Makata batting second. I like Grandal batting third because with the way that Makata and Grandal walk, then, when you have a Brayu batting cleanup, he's probably going to get an opportunity to hit with somebody on base in the first inning because I know that's such a big deal is getting a Brayu and a bat in that first inning for some instant offense. And then Jimenez, fifth. I would bat Tim Anderson, sixth. And whoever your DH and right fielder is, and then if you pick up the option on Cesar Hernandez to be your second baseman, Hernandez is batting ninth. You can do a lot worse than Cesar Hernandez batting ninth in a lineup. And there's a part of me, the way I'm just thinking about this and just watching on how well Luis Robert is performing, and how well Yasmani Grandal is performing, my brain is going to have a hard time, Jim, understanding why the two hottest White Sox hitters are going to bat fifth and sixth in this lineup, because that's where Yasmani Grandal and Luis Robert are going to hit, based on past lineup tendencies from Tony DeRosa in which we're going to see Tim Anderson bat leadoff, Yohan Makata second, then Abreu, then Jimenez, and that's a great one through four, and we're really nitpicking here, Mm -hmm. but that's I'm watching Luis Robert, and I'm going to keep pounding the table here, folks. He's the best player the White Sox have overall, and from 2022 and moving forward, if we're talking about full season plans, I need Luis Robert to have more plate appearances than Tim Anderson because Robert's going to do more with those plate appearances than Anderson.
2: I don't think that's unfair. Like I I think there are potentially given, you know, Roberts, um, he's still young as a hitter. I think he's way more polished than I thought he was going to be in his second year. I thought it was gonna be more of a full season battle for him to, uh, you know, maybe like a month to month ebb and flow based on what pitchers were giving him and what he was learning to lay off. But he's, He's doing a lot more within the strike zone this year, and I think that's helped him. You know, in the occasions that he has some uh, moments of over aggression and over exuberance at the plate. But one thing I'm, I'm wondering is, you know, one is Eloy Jimenez that much of a fixture in the fourth spot right now? Like that's why I would drop him to fifth yeah. next year. Well, I'm thinking like even just this season, like you know, if Grandal continues hitting like he is and Anderson's back and Robert's back and their guys hit like, you know, should Jimenez bat fifth or sixth right in the form he's showing right now, where he's just hitting a lot of ground balls, to the left side, uh, and, and just not quite being able to barrel it up the opposite way as strong, you know, with, the, with the kind of strength he's shown in the past. Like this is kind of where I just, you know, I root for more fluid lineups, you know, to have mm-hmm. Anderson take a game and lead off, have Robert take a game and lead off, have, uh, you know, Jimenez bat fourth, have Jimenez bat sixth, like just, uh, kind of move guys around because they're all worthy of looks in various spots at different times based on their talent but also just uh you know when it comes to uh hitters you know being whether it's you know confidence thing whether it's a health thing and uh it just i think it's good to have the flexibility so you don't feel like you're insulting somebody by moving them down or uh you know just putting too much pressure by moving somebody up that you know it shouldn't feel so momentous I think, to have different batting orders, which is why I never make a big deal about batting orders when they come out. Uh, just, I, I try not to even really pay much attention. I look who's starting, but I don't really pay too much attention to the order they're in, uh, just because I try to be the change I want to see in the world. <laughs> so uh, so that's kind of where I'm at. But I think, you know, overall, um, the one thing I will say about Anderson is that uh, Michael Fisher Codify, a uh, friend of the show, he tweeted a couple of them been looking up. Oh, a few days ago, uh, September 8th, that uh, Tim Anderson has scored 47% of the time that he's reached base, which is the best mark of any MLB player. So I think when he's batting leadoff, he does add something just when it comes to uh, aggression, to knowledge of the game, to base running, etc. just his comfort within the game uh, to move around the base paths, the way that maybe Luis Robert doesn't right now, or Luis Robert coming off... Uh, hip surgery doesn't have right now, so I think they both have merits. I think if uh, Anderson bats lead off in the games he's playing, like I don't think it's necessarily uh, anything to hit the panic button over, but I wouldn't mind seeing, uh, yeah. And I think this is another thing too with Anderson taking, you know, alternating games off or whatever plan Larusa has for him. That there's opportunities for Robert to keep showing himself, and and nobody should have their feelings hurt.
1: No, good points, Jim. I, I think at this moment. I would almost think about batting Grandal in front of Abreu. Only because if Abreu is in this race for an RBI title, why not have a guy who is, what is he hitting now? Like 500 still since so going off the injury list? Like Grandal's constantly on base. That's what you need. Of course, Jose Abreu probably needs more speed on the Bates pass because he likes to ground into a plays. That's ton what I was going to say. Yeah.
2: You can't really start him. <laughs> The way you can start other guys.
1: <laughs> now it's just it, it's a thought that I've had like moving forward and watching Luis Robert hit and the way that he's hitting in September. I mean, these are just incredible numbers. Luis Robert is hitting 378 with a 391 on-base percentage and he's slugging 533. He only has one home run in September, but as we saw on Saturday night against Boston where he goes 4 for 5 And he drives in three runs uh, and has that huge bases Cleary double uh, to make it a one-run game. And when Mikata hits a double, all of a sudden the White Sox are down 7-2. Now they're tied 7-7. And Luis Robert is in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. And I just, folks, 2022 and beyond, I know Tim Anderson has had a terrific 2019 and a terrific 2020, and he was having a terrific 2021. That is an amazing three-year stretch for Tim Anderson, especially his progression. But next year and beyond, Luis Robert is the best player on this team. And I firmly believe that, and I believe that with the way that Robert has handled his own clearly uh, while Anderson was out batting leadoff, that I am sold that this is your leadoff hitter, in 2022 and beyond. I need Robert to have the most played appearances on the White Sox next season. Because again, I think he'll do the most out of
2: that spot in the lineup. So you don't think there's going to be any great correction with no. Robert? Like any kind of like the, the September of 2020 type
1: solving? I, th- we, I think we would have seen it by now.
2: Yeah.
1: Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, it keeps going up. The arrow keeps going up, Jim, <laughs> Since he's returned, uh, I, and it just doesn't look like there's any slowing down at the moment. Uh He'll go over four one night, like he did against Oakland in Oakland. Then the next night he's two for four, like. Or he went over four against Kansas City on September third. The next night he goes four for five. Like there's just no slumping right now with Luis Robert. And it's like he's he's understanding a bat to at bat. This is what I'm trying to achieve. If there's an opportunity like he had on Saturday night to come with come up with an impact extra basis hit, he's coming up with that for the White Sox. Or if there's nobody on, he's figuring out a way to get on base. It is really incredible what Robert has been doing. And if we're talking about you know playing the guy with the hot hand. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm sorry, Tim. I know you think you deserve the leadoff spot because you got a batting title, but dude,
2: <laughs> look at what Luis is doing. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Do you think Anderson would be the type to object?
1: Yes, yes, yes. Because he he worked out, he worked hard at that, and he has been a proven leadoff hitter, and that is where he feels most comfortable. Because it's just not the offensive performance, it's setting the table. It is setting the vibe. And that is what Anderson is for this White Sox team. And that's why, ultimately, this is really a non-talking point when it comes to Tony La Russa, Because Anderson's going to bat leadoff. And Robert is going to drop to 5th or 6th in the lineup, despite how well he's hitting. And... The talking point will be, well, we got six great hitters, so we put them one through six, so we're fine. Somebody's going to have to bat six in the lineup.
2: I I don't Uh, like. I'm I'm not sure about that, just because the way, because it's Luis Robert. Like the way teammates speak of Robert, his talents, just what they've seen him do. I I think players know, and others.
1: I I have not heard that from Anderson.
2: eh, Yeah, I you know I'm. Like, I think it's, you know, comes down to, you know, how it's pitched, how fluid the lineup is. And just, you know, that, that's why, you know, I'll go back to it, just argue for a more fluid lineup. So that way you don't get guys entrenched. You don't get guys feeling like they deserve something. You don't feel like, you know, things are taken away from them. It just feels like it it's something where the manager can establish like a presence and, and keep everybody involved without feelings being hurt. But I, I don't know, I, I'm... I'm more optimistic that Anderson would handle it well just because I think there's enough ways to mix and match the lineup that everybody should feel like they're doing something. And Robert being like, if he continues this, like right now he's looking at his numbers, he's on a 7.5 win pace, like whether it's fan graphs or baseball reference, uh, you know, batting 344, which is a higher average than Anderson's hit for, like the walks are fine, the strikeouts come down. And one thing that's impressed me about Robert is it seems like he now has a couple of swings in his bag. They didn't have last year, like when he swung over sliders or swung through fastballs, is like the high, big swing, high follow through. And just, you know, kind of looked like he was um, ex- very exploitable just because the one swing always ended up in the same place. But now you're seeing shorter swings. You're seeing, uh, you yeah, know, he has a more defensive swing that still has a lot of power, like that double that he hit down the left field line almost kind of reminded me of like a, a, a punch shot in golf. Uh, like kind of a, a shorter follow-through, like, you know, I, I guess paying attention to following the fly of the ball, like he didn't bust it out of the box right away because almost like he didn't, he wasn't exactly sure where it went. <laughs> Just, but You know, like, almost like he wanted to keep his eye on the ball and and, and and practice like seeing it all the way back to contact point to, you know, kind of launch angle and go from there. But I think if he progresses, if he holds the, these gains through the end of the year and has like a big October and, you know, looks like the guy I think teammates have a way of knowing. And I think the way, you know, people will talk about Robert is the way people talk about, you know, if he's this good, uh, you know, is maybe like a tier below the way they talk about Soto and Tatis and, you know, Guerrero and so forth, maybe not, you know, on that level, but having the kind of talent to where they can take over a game like that.
1: Yeah. And, and this isn't anything that Anderson has done. It's just the evolution of Luis Robert, where, we are talking about a superstar. One of the... I think he's going to be one of the more popular American League MVP picks next year. People will say, "Well, oh, this is my Dark Horse MVP pick. I'm going with Luis Roberts. Did you see what he did in August and September last year? But it's going to be that, quote-unquote, sleeper pick that everybody writes about. <laughs> that It's not really much a sleeper pick, right? Uh, yeah, I just... It's amazing. And what we are seeing with Luis Robert and I would be a little disheartened. I would understand, but part of my brain would be like, yes, Grandal and Luis Robert are lighting the world on fire. Why are they batting fifth and sixth in the lineup?
2: I'd just like to see a situation where like Anderson bats first and Robert bats second, you know, just every once in a while, like just, Sure. Yeah. There are ways to do it. There are ways to do it where everybody can be happy. And everybody, I think just the talent is so evident that I, I think it's going to be hard to be insulted, especially if you just don't give up on a guy. Like you don't just say like, all right, sorry, Tim, good to run. Now you're batting seven for the rest of your life. Like it's not going to be like <laughs> <Right>. that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Well, I mean, this conversation beats debating on why Nicky to is batting fourth. Nick Williams. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, I forgot about Nick Williams yeah. batting fourth. That was so stupid. Man, we've come a long way this year. But yeah, Luis Robert is awesome. And I think moving forward next year, uh, I, I'd like to see Robert Bat lead off. But. Yeah, I just want to plant that seed in everybody's mind now, because uh, one seed I'm going to rip out of the ground is uh, having Dylan C start game two, because Jim, I'll openly admit it, you were right. Uh, <laughs> Saturday is a good example of what could happen if you start C in game two in a situation, how things could be dicey. Uh, But Carlos Rodon and Lance Lynn, they returned to the White Sox rotation and they were outstanding. Both made it through five innings. Rodon allowed just three hits, one earned run, which was a home run, walking none and struck out seven uh, without his premium stuff. Lance Lynn, five innings pitched, only two hits allowed, no earned runs, no walks and struck out nine. So if you just look at the stat lines, you'd think, wow, these guys are 100% back. Not the case. Uh, Carlos Serdan only threw 86 pitches. And again, while he was displaying and flashing more velocity, uh, the slider really wasn't working well for him. And for Lance Lynn, he openly admitted that his right knee issue is going to be something he's going to have to pitch through for the rest of this season. And despite both of them throwing really well, manager Tony Russo did announce that the White Sox will be going to a six-man rotation. Meaning Ronaldo Lopez will be the sixth starter for the White Sox. So, Jim, do you think it's wise to move into this six man rotation now with nineteen games left in the regular season?
2: I think so. Especially you have all these games without an off day. You have a double header in the mix there. So there will be a need for six starters no matter what. So um yeah, it's yeah, I think I'm more worried about Rodon than Lynn, just because I think Lynn, yeah, I, I don't think he's I shouldn't say he's like He's making up his knee injury or, or drawing attention to it. I think he's just somebody who's at peace, not feeling great. <laughs> Although, with the I'm, I'm trying to find the quote that he gave James Fagan talking about how he has uh, he wears a hoodie even in the summer while warming up and sweating just because he feels like you know being miserable all the time makes it consistent. And <laughs> I, I think that's you know kind of uh, how he operates is like yeah yeah just he's not somebody who wants to feel too good or feel like he's you know in control or feel like he you know everything's working for him i think he's happy having one thing nagging at him and one thing to manage and just i don't know if it's a, a matter of keeping him humble or focused or or what but uh it, it would fit his MO if he just liked having something to complain about a little bit or something to focus on that takes his you know matter off um you know things he can't control like your know, performance of hitters like if he's just you know, if you know, focusing on his knee makes him think about his delivery and what he's doing like you know maybe that's something to that but with rodon i think he's still trying to figure out like how much he can do like uh in his starts before he uh went on the injured list like the two starts that he had like he was you know trying to do his old uh you know routine where he'd start out in the low 90s and ramp it up but he was only getting up to like 95 96 the fastball velocity got up to 98 when he needed it his last time out, but the slider velocity wasn't quite there. He was using more tilt on it. I think he was, might have been trying to use it more like a curveball, like a slower breaker. That wasn't working for him. Uh, the good news is I think that the fastball was still very effective. Uh, and also I think that Tony Larusa, you know, whether it was pitch counts, whether it was um, what hitters were telling him, like in his final inning of work, he gave up a homer and 3 popouts. And to me, that's like, oh, they're starting to time him. Like, they're starting to, you know, get the bat under him, probably an inning from it all, you know, from them being a real threat against him. But for five innings, they couldn't figure out his fastball. Like, his fastball just had a little bit too much for them to have real comfortable swings. So when you think about the postseason, you know, getting a five innings from a starter in, in the postseason in the modern era, uh, the very modern era, because it's only been a, a trend for a few years, that should be enough for O'Don as the, you know, whether he's the second starter, third, fourth, whatever game he's starting. Uh, that seems to offer a team enough. So if he can keep this up to where his fastball never gets torched uh, and, the, and the slider just needs to be there and he threw his change up a little bit more too. And that helped, I think, uh, with this fastball a little bit, uh, that he should have enough to offer a, a postseason team some decent performances as long as he's able to make it back within you know five to six days.
1: I agree with you on the five innings and I think that's any that's all that any postseason team can ask for. and especially if you can pitch five scoreless innings, that's huge. and mm-hmm. we talked about this last week that honestly Carlos Rodan's gonna make one start per series. Uh, unless it's a Game 7 situation and it's all hands on deck. And Rodon's going to have to throw an inning for the White Sox to, to win that game in advance. Or if it's Game 7 of the World Series, I'm sure he'll make himself available uh, so he could win a World Championship before entering free agency. But it, with the physical you know, status right now for both Rodon and Lynn. If these guys are your back-to-back starters, because I I think our friend Beefloaf over from the 108 wrote about the idea of maybe having Lucas Giolito start Game 1 because of how well he threw against Oakland, and Giolito does have this mode that he can hyper-focus and he can be outstanding. If Lynn and Rodon are your Game 2 and Game 3 starters in the upcoming Divisional Series... And if they both pitch like they did against Boston, where they're just putting up seven-plus strikeouts, they're not walking anyone, barely any hits are coming, and they throw five scoreless innings, you got to take that if you're the Chicago White Sox and ask the bullpen, can you please cover the last four and offense? Can you provide some run support? Uh, Because these guys are going to put up zeros for five innings. I I think that's huge, and I I know that at one point, I did think that they were going to both finish the top three of the Cy Young, but if they are physically limited and yet still putting up those results, you got to take it. Even though I know many White Sox fans would be like, well, push them to the sixth or push them to the seventh. I think it's smarter, especially if you're preparing for a deep postseason run, to keep them at five innings, maybe six innings max for both Carlos Rodon and Lance Lynn.
2: Yeah, I think it's a matter of like, you know, with the... Pitch count that Lynn had, uh, 70 pitches through five basically, like he could have gone, you know, I think for his first start back, five innings, 70 pitches makes sense. I think, you know, should he be feeling better and six, like say going six and 85, six and 90, like that doesn't strike me as ridiculous if there are no like high stress innings, if he looks fine, if his landing leg looks normal, you know, if his mechanics aren't compromised, like. Six innings doesn't bother me, but yeah, I'm more or less where you are, where five innings is more or less what I'm expecting. Uh, And, you know, should there be a a real high-stress inning there along the way? Like, I could see them, you know, going four innings and then just having, you know, Mike Wright and Jimmy Lamberts, maybe Evan Marshall rotating back and forth between Chicago and Charlotte just to have that fresh arm to pick up some innings if need be. Well, if they
1: continue with this strategy, and if Rodon and Lynn continue to hand the bullpen uh, a scoreless outing, let's talk about the back end of the pitching staff. And that conversation right now focuses on Craig Kimbrell. The White Sox bullpen this weekend pitched really well. You know, Michael Kopech did a fabulous job filling in for Dylan Cease covering two and a third innings on Saturday. Uh, However, Kimbrell gave up the lead in the eighth inning in that game. And on Sunday, in a save opportunity, Kimbrell once again coughed up the lead. Kimbrell has made 17 appearances for the White Sox since the trade. And in seven of those appearances, he's allowed at least one run. That's 41% of his appearances. With the Chicago Cubs and 36 and two-thirds innings pitched, Kimbrell allowed just six runs, two of them earned. With the White Sox in 17 innings, he's already allowed 11 earned runs. What sucks about this topic is that Kimbrell had four straight scoreless outings before Saturday, but Saturday and Sunday happened. And it's not the first time we've seen this failure since Kimbrell joined the White Sox. We, we mm-hmm. know that Larusa will continue going to Kimbrell in the eighth inning and other high leverage situations, but I have a trust issue with Kimbrell right now, Jim. Do you? Mm-hmm.
2: I think so, but I think it's one worth working on. Like, uh, I, I think, you know, he's important enough or he has the potential uh, based on what he'd show with the Cubs, what he'd shown with the previous teams that he can, you know, the pitches are there, the velocity is there, the life is there, the, the break on his curve is there. He's having a hard time putting it together. Um, you know, some of his misses, I think, are are huge misses, even by his standards. Um, and James Feegan, in one of his stories talking about Kimbrel, said that you know he Kimbrel kind of, one of the one things one of the things that makes him unique and difficult to hit is that his fastball seems to have different action on it game to game. Like he seems to just kind of uh, it, it almost feels like a real feel based thing like arm slot just the way that ball is leaving his hand how much life he gets whether it's kind of like hop rise run like it's sometimes not the same fastball twice in a row and so it's hard for a pitching staff um or i should say like uh, the coaching staff uh pitching coaches to i guess figure them out like figure out what's wrong with his mechanics what's yeah i guess what's the level of variation he has in his mechanics in his release um And that might explain why he's had some rocky transitions in his career, you know, going from one team to another. And maybe when you have like a, you know, kind of postseason hopes riding on him being a major acquisition, maybe that's something uh, the White Sox might have underestimated um, perhaps. But you've seen him have innings where he just, you know, dominates. And the curveball makes hitters look silly. Uh, The fastball makes hitters swing really late. Like he has the stuff. So I think it's worth trying to figure out like I think three days in a row is excessive I understand LaRusse has a tendency to want to let relievers get rid of the aftertaste as soon as possible and I think it would have made sense to send him out two innings in a row Uh, but maybe the second one being in his third consecutive day of work might have been a little bit too much and maybe not putting him in position to succeed so I think there is a little bit of Control that Larusa and Ethan Katz and so forth have to try to uh, gain. Just saying, like, well, we can't try to solve it just by reps alone. Like, in, it, you need to fit it within the flow of the game. You can't force it uh, and and go from there. But I don't mind seeing him get the eighth innings. I don't mind being nervous just because the White Sox, you know, their magic number is nine. Their lead in the division is twelve. Um, it's worth pursuing. It's worth trying to figure out if he can iron it out before the postseason. And then, should this be a theme where you know you just you can't get more than like two days in a row before he has major control laps, or uh, the fastball starts getting smacked because the curveball just is missing too wildly for hitters to take it seriously, then I think that's when you try to you know you, you hope that Larusa's insistence slash stubbornness, perhaps to make Kimbrell an eighth inning pitcher, a high leverage pitcher. Like, you hope that abates by the time October rolls around and he can admit that, like, it's not working and he got to maybe swap him with Ryan Tapera, maybe see how Michael Kopech is doing and whether, you know, his uh, improved fastball and slider is here to stay. Like, there are options if Kimbrell doesn't work, but I think Kimbrell, the potential is still so tantalizing. And it makes sense to keep trying it within reason, not three days in a row. I don't think that's within reason. But, uh, you know, just in normal workloads, normal situations, keep going to it at least until it gets demoralizing.
1: Well, the whole three days in a row, I mean, it is it is possible that Kimbrel is going to pitch in three, three games in four days come the Divisional Series.
2: Yeah, but I don't think you have to do it now. Okay.
1: I, I could buy... Not having to do it now. It's where the distrust that I have with Kimbrel is. As soon as someone gets on base for Kimbrel, that's where my stomach starts to turn in knots while watching the Green wild Kimbrel. pitches. Well, the wild pitches. So you got a guy at second base, and on Saturday I'm in section one ten. I don't have a good angle. All I see is a spike pitch that goes to the backstop, and the runner's moving from second to third. And there are people on Twitter. Uh, responding to me that that was Grandall's fault because he got mixed up on the pitch and that's why it sailed to the the backstop even though it was ruled
2: a, a wild pitch. And it was wild. Well, I mean if it's cross up that's on the pitcher. Uh, usually. So if it yeah, so it's a cross up it's you know, it wasn't Grandall's best effort, but yeah, if it's cross up then that's probably not on him and then it was a very violent pitch into the ground. <laughs> Oh, Whether well, it's what yeah, it's it didn't there wasn't a whole lot of ground to cover for Grandal laterally, but it did hit the ground with malice <laughs> and, and really took a nasty hop. So yeah, just yeah, I could see it being a 50-50 thing, assuming that wasn't a cross up on Kimbrel's uh parts, then that's basically entirely him.
1: And, and the reason I, I put the onus on Kimbrel because we've seen it now with Bo Zavala and we've now seen it with Grandal. Like the common denominator here is Kimbrel, and yeah, it, my distrust begins when he allows a base runner on, and if it's a double, then the White Sox have to change signs, and that relationship is still pretty new between Kimbrel and the White Sox catchers, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's just that that's where things get messy, and. If he doesn't allow anyone on, well, obviously that's a terrific inning because it's probably a one-two-three inning for Craig Kimbrel, And then I excel, and it's like, hey, uh, this is the guy that the White Sox traded for, and I feel dumb for even being worried at all. But as we saw on Saturday, and it was a bit heartbreaking because even though Dylan Cease gave up seven runs, the White Sox offense found a way to retake mm-hmm. the lead and Kimbrel coughs it up and especially with how well Michael Kopech had pitched and especially with on how Tony the has been using Aaron Bummer and Garrett Crochet almost in a loogie situation finally figuring out hey they don't have to face three batters that they end the inning so if there's two outs and a lefty's coming up I'm going to Aaron Bummer for that one out and then I'm going to go to Kimbrel in the eighth. Uh, And I think that's really smart thinking and that's a great way of, of bending the rules and the intentions that major league baseball had with the three batter minimum. Uh, But yeah, it's just the the cost of the trade and here is the result that it's the same thing with Cesar Hernandez, but Hernandez's acquisition was really cheap in my opinion. It, It just hasn't been a great first impression. It hasn't been very smooth and the way that Liam Hendricks has been pitching, I have no concerns about the ninth inning. Here we are though in middle of September, and I'm still a bit concerned on how the eighth inning is going to be handled. When I thought this was resolved when the white Sox acquired Kimbrel in July. yeah, I 30th. think,
2: you know, your, your point about runners on, I think that really clarifies uh, the whole idea of, you know, maybe Kimbrel should pitch ninth because he's a hall of fame closer, which I disagree with. Cause I don't think many closers are hall of famers, but that's a, different point but also just you know as you mentioned once a runner gets on uh kimbrell can advance that runner by himself whereas Hendricks, you know should there be a runner on second should he not want to give up that 90 feet he can go to pure fastball and fastball 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 maybe a slider in the zone because the, they're so in uh geared up for that fastball that the slider doesn't need to be like a put-away pitch in the dirt to get the swing over it. Like, it helps, you know, if it's a nicely located slider that just, uh, you know, almost hits the catcher in the foot that the catcher is ready for, but he can get by with one pitch. Like, he's a great closer, and he's been the best reliever in baseball for the last couple of years, uh, just based on his, how tough it is to land a knockout combo against him. Like, they, they can get a, him occasional single, but it's hard for them to get you know extra bases at one time aside from the homer issue we had earlier in the year. I think the homers have come down nicely, but when he's limiting singles and he's not giving up walks and he's not throwing wild pitches, like he's hard to get those uh, you know more than ninety feet against. And I think that's what you know if if you're talking about the ninth inning and you've already used Hendricks and then Kimbrel's in, like you can't go to anybody else. So that's why I think it makes sense for Hendricks to be that final boss, uh, whereas Kimbrell, I think you know I'm like I share your discomfort with the eighth inning, but I'm okay being uncomfortable with the eighth inning because I think it's worth learning exhaustively what his limitations are. Because I think it's more useful for October than having him, you know, alternate good performances and bad, being a little bit gun shy from having to use him in a high leverage situation. But if the situation comes to him or it's between him and like Ryan Tapera or him and Michael Kopeck, like I think it's worth knowing and having like an exhaustive list of situations that went wrong and here's why to inform that decision-making to go away from him if need be. Well, if he can go back to four straight appearances,
1: not allow any run that would help, uh, at least by stress level at late games for the white Sox. Uh, but yeah, it, again, it go, it kind of feeds into the conversation we had earlier this year when Hendricks was struggling is Liam Hendricks good? Like, that was a question that we were trying to answer. Right now, I kind of feel like we're trying to answer the question, is Craig Kimbrell good? And I I don't have a definitive answer one way or the other right now. Uh, hopefully, before the postseason comes in, Kimbrell gets into a better rhythm and put, posts more scoreless outings. And we don't have to worry about him when he gets the ball. Instead, we could be more excited when Kimbrel comes into the game, knowing that the White Sox can lock it down and close it out. The next series for the Chicago White Sox will be against the Los Angeles Angels and the assumed American League MVP, Shohei Otani. Let's preview that series next after a quick word from our sponsors.
0: Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at Babbel.com slash BlueWire. That's 60% off at Babbel.com slash BlueWire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash BlueWire. Rules and restrictions apply.
1: Welcome back to the Sox Machine podcast. The Los Angeles Angels now visit the Chicago White Sox after an off day on Monday, September 13th for the White Sox. For a three-game series from Tuesday through Thursday, the Angels are 70 and 73 on the season, and in their last 10 games, they are 4 and 6. They did win the season series. Uh, I'm sorry, the first series against the White Sox. Uh, they won three out of four, which was the opening series of 2021. So the season series is up in the air. The White Sox have to sweep the Angels in order to win the season series or the angels that they win one game have won the season series against the white Sox. but a lot a lot has happened since these two teams have played against each other and the pitching problems for this series uh it's not well known for both sides wednesday and thursday are to be determined uh however jim i've got dallas Keuchel possibly penciled in for wednesday start and Ronaldo Lopez possibly penciled in for Thursday start. Lucas Giolito will be making the start for the White Sox on Tuesday. And he's going up against the Angel starter Packy Naughton. Packy. Yeah. Great Packy. Name. Did he hop in the back to the future DeLorean and travel from nineteen twenty nine to two thousand and twenty one to pitch?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's uh um He's got, like, he's, like, uh, apparently it's the childhood nickname or the the name that a uh, uh, child relative could not pronounce. So Patrick uh, got mangled to Packy by, uh, I think, a relative when he was a kid, and so he just grew up being called Packy by everybody. Uh, my brother is the same thing. He's Jeff, but he could not pronounce his own name when he was little. He called himself Fuff. So he gets called Fuff every once in a while by family members. So... Uh, it doesn't strike me as strange when saying his name is Patrick. Like, ah, got it. I am so sorry, Jeff. That is not a good nickname. Fuff. He likes it. He doesn't mind it. Fuff. Not fluff. Yeah. Fuff. No, he was Jeffrey. He couldn't pronounce it. He said Fuffy. Fuffy,
1: Fuffy yep. <laughs> Oh, But yeah, we'll see on how the White Sox offense does against Packy on Tuesday, and the Angels are up in the air for Wednesday and Thursday. However, Lucas Giolito is back, Jim. What are we hoping to see from Lucas Giolito in his return start?
2: Well, I think if uh, past his precedent with Rodon and Lynn and having the postseason in mind, I would think five innings for the first start. I do think, you know, based on his description of the injury and how soon he's back when LaRusso wasn't promising a quick return, I would think he would have the... Uh, leeway to go longer in subsequent starts. Okay, so he's got the 100 pitch limit. I would say he probably have like an 80 pitch limit coming oh. back, but then like you know for one for one game, assuming it goes reasonably got it. well. So
1: the next time, which theoretically could be Detroit when the White Sox visit Detroit after the upcoming weekend series against the Texas Rangers, that's where Gielito can ramp up to 100 pitches. Yeah, like a reasonable 100. Got, Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, if he can get, if he can do what Rodon and Lynn did and pitch five scoreless innings, uh, that would be terrific. As for the Angels, maybe one of the most dangerous hitters in all of Major League Baseball, Shohei Otani is the guy that Lucas Giolito is going to have to navigate through or navigate around as far as in this lineup. Uh, Otani has 44 home runs this year. And now he's tied for the Major League lead with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. of the Toronto Blue Jays. And here's my second hot take after the whole Luis Robert-Tim Anderson discussion earlier in the show. I get this is Mm -hmm. a -a once-in-a-lifetime season from Otani, but I wonder, Jim, with the Blue Jays' push to the postseason, if Vlad Jr. steals more first-place votes in these final weeks of the season.
2: Uh, I don't know like it, it just feels like the season of Otani and it feels like his story so do you think it would be unanimous and though? I don't mind not unanimous like I can see some especially like if he does drive uh, uh, if if Guerrero does uh, help drive uh, the Blue Jays to a postseason spot, I can see him getting some but I just think it's going to be just overwhelmingly Otani and because yeah, just when, you're, when are you going to see a season like this again never yeah, you know, possibly next year if he does it again. But, you know, just given that it was kind of a minor miracle that he even got to this point, you can't take it for granted. True.
1: And I guess that's what—that's why he would be receiving the American League MVP is to honor this once-in-a-lifetime season. Both what he's done on the mound and, yeah. of course, tied for the league lead in home runs with 44.
2: Yeah, he's kind of slowing down a little bit in that regard. Like, I'm looking at his last 30 days. He's only hitting two twenty-one 358 OBP, a 430 slugging percentage, like his extra base hits are homers. Although he also has seven stolen bases. So that's really something. But uh, yeah, so it just might be, you know, the, the weight of the season and his responsibilities might be wearing him down a little bit. But still, yeah, I think at this point, it's just been so remarkable what he's done and just so unthinkable in this game before he arrived that, yeah, just how can you take that for granted? And it feels like, you know, having Guerrero get more votes. Like, I don't mind Guerrero getting some just because, like, if he's having a great season and the Blue Jays are benefiting in a way that surprises everybody, cool. Like, yeah, give him some support. But just I think Otani overall is, uh, you know, almost like Hall of Fame voting. Like, it's kind of cool when, like, a guy gets 10% of the votes just because, like, he did have a great career. (laughs) It's damn hard to have a career that's, like, as good as a Paul Canerco career. So, like, if he gets... You know, handful of votes. Cool. Like, you know, good for him. Good for the, the, the process. Uh, but yeah, just Otani just seems like the guy and it's, it'd be hard to argue otherwise. Well, I, think.
1: I hope he gets used to the pressure because next year when Mike Trott is healthy and Anthony Radone is healthy and coming off a 2021 American league MVP season, I'm sorry, Anaheim, the expectations are going to be very high. There's too much talent for this team to be below 500.
2: Yeah, it's the, uh, well, I assume you've seen the Tungsten Armo Doyle tweets. No, I did not. Oh, it just, it circulates every, uh, basically every week when, uh, when Otani does something from Matt Matt Tomic on Twitter, said, every time I see an Angels highlight, it's like Mike Trout hit three home runs and races averaged a 528, while Shohei Otani did something that hasn't been done since Tungsten Armo O'Doyle of the 1921 Akron Groomsman as the Tigers defeated the Angels (laughs) 8-3. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, and I think, you know, it's one thing when, you know, it's Trout being the greatest player on the planet and and getting no help. And it's one thing when Otani is doing the Tungsten Armo O'Doyle thing. And yeah it just happens that Trout misses half a season and Rendon's out and such but yeah when even two of those three are back and they're having just an unremarkable forgettable season they're not on the map except for when those players put them on the map game to game basis uh yeah that's that's I think when it seemed, I would say like heads have to roll but is it like at that point it just might be an Artie Moreno thing and he can't fire himself because he's the owner. They can meddle less, I suppose, hire different people, but that doesn't seem to be his style.
1: Yeah, but when they signed Anthony Rendon, that wasn't a terrible decision. They got one of the best third basemen no. in all of Major League Baseball.
2: they just, they have a hard time making the some match the parts. That's true.
1: That's true. But I don't know. Is that how you feel about the Angels? Because that's how I feel. Like next year, before they make any moves in the offseason, it's time. Angels, it, it is time for you to win the American League West. You have too much talent on this team to be sputtering around 500.
2: Yeah, and Albert Pujols is gone. Like just that that era is over. It seems like they, they can reboot. There, there there's room. There's financial leeway. What what have you? Like they can they should be able to get something done.
1: Yeah, you got Joe Adele who's coming into his own. Reed Detmers, we talked a lot about Reed Detmers. He's thrown really well for the Angels down in the minor leagues. Jared Walsh has been to nice. the major leagues. Yeah, Jared Walsh. Yeah, there you go. That's your replacement at first base, right, for Pujols. Yeah, it's just that it, this team is too good. And I could see the White Sox winning two out of three against the Angels and being stressful games against the Angels. And while you watch this Angels team, you can see, yeah, this team's got a lot of talent. This is a dangerous team, but they're 70-73, and and they're fourth place in the American League West. And Shohei Otani is going to win the American League MVP for a team that's probably going to finish below 500. And that's why I mentioned what I did about Vlad Guerrero Jr., because you're going to have old school writers, Jim. They're going to look at the standings and say, well, just how valuable was Otani's once-in-a-lifetime season for the Angels? And it, the answer probably is, well, without Otani, they're probably at 55 and like 88. And then you'd have some saying, well, they probably want to be 55 and 88, so they have a better draft pick next year.
2: <laughs> yeah, I just think uh, when you look at what he's done and just... Yeah, he's the MVP. Yeah, and just, I'm just, you know, if you told somebody before the season that, like, this was, I would say before Otani arrived, like, just before he was known among, um, you yeah, know, even in Japanese circles, because, like, the hype did precede him a little bit, but just before you knew a player like him existed, could you fathom a 3.36 ERA over 100-plus innings on one side and, you know, over 40 homers on the other? No. And 23 stolen bases. I think that's that's the thing that blows blows my mind the most is watching him run. It's like, I get, okay, hard thrower, a lot of power. We've seen that, like, I guess, you know, seeing Matt Davidson, who is not Shohei Otani, but just like having seen the combination of like, oh, he can throw hard and has a decent breaking ball. And, oh, he can hit the ball a long way. Like, I can fathom that combination, but I've seen Matt Davidson run. Uh, you know, the old thick McRun fast, <laughs> it's just the, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of body to move. It didn't move that quickly. So seeing Otani like steal 20 plus bases, seeing him like leg out triples. That's, I think what really just kind of makes it really hard for me to compute.
1: Yeah. he will be the number one player in fantasy baseball next year. And we'll see if he can live up to the hype next year. But it is a, it's an amazing season. And I'm going on Tuesday before I go on vacation on Wednesday because I want to see Otani. I, I want to be able to see him in person and say, I saw Otani when he had this once-in-a-lifetime season in 2021. Unfortunately, we're not going to see him in the postseason because the Angels can't figure out what the heck they're doing, yeah. despite having all this talent that they got on their team.
2: Yeah, I'm going to be in town, too, and I'm going to be making a point to go and, and see him. And just, uh, I don't think the way he's been used in the rotation that, you know, uh, there's a chance he could pitch, which I was hoping for. Like I was going to you know, try to plot out when that could be, but he's been working on extra rest the entire season. So yeah, that's not in the cards, unfortunately. We'll see
1: how the White Sox do. and We'll see what Otani does against the White Sox pitchers this upcoming week. But coming up next, you guys posed a lot of questions to us. So let's answer them next in PO Sox.
0: You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox.
1: Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where our Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash Machine filled up our mailbag once again for P.O. Sox. So all of these questions come from... Our Patreon supporters, and as always, thank you guys so much for your support. And Jim, the first question that we have from our page, from PO Sox, from a Patreon supporter. Uh, this question comes from Mohammed, and Mohammed wrote to us, "Hey guys, since Cody Hoyer moved up north, he's dropped his ERA from 5.12 to 3.68. His Cubs ERA is 0.90." Considering how wobbly Ryan Tapera and Craig Kimbrell have been since coming to the South side, how much of their struggles can be attributed to the White Sox organization and Ethan Kant's decisions in regards to preparation, attack plans, and game calling. The White Sox bullpen is one of the highest strikeout rates in the league, but Cody Hoyer's strikeout per nine cratered with the Cubs, yet he has greatly improved his results maybe the White Sox are emphasizing stuff to the detriment of everything else?
2: Well, I, I think uh, I, would, I wouldn't would call Tapera wobbly when you look at his numbers with the White Sox, especially after the first couple outings that he had after the trade. That, that was wobbly, but his introduction was poor. But uh, since the start of April, like he had a stretch where he had 17 games, only had nine base runners allowed over 14 two-thirds innings, struck out 22, 1.23 ERA, Uh, 119 FIP, you know, just 345 OPS against. Like, he was good. I'm looking at the inherited numbers, too, just to see. Uh, Yeah, three out of four inherited numbers, uh, runner stranded. So he's been good. I think he had a blip last time out, but he's been fine. So I wouldn't use him as any kind of... I wouldn't liken him to Kimbrel. I think is a different animal entirely. But I think with Hoyer, just based on what I've been reading, a little bit of what I've been seeing, I looked at some of his uh, pitch data, um he's getting a lot of pop-ups with the Cubs. Like he's getting like an insane infield fly rate. That's why the ups the down. That's why he's succeeding without the strikeouts. Um, you know, his strikeout rate is down, but it's also like he doesn't need them when he's getting like 30% infield fly rate. And, you know, part of me wonders two things. One is, you know, I would say a point against the White Sox, which is that, you know, maybe they didn't know exactly how to use his fastball. Like maybe they just, you know, he was a sinker slider guy in the minors, uh, got good ground ball rates in the minors, came to the majors, ground ball rate took a hit, but was also pretty lively to where it didn't really matter too much and the slider was good. This year seemed like he had a hard time getting ground balls. The, the, the balls were hit in the air uh, more and harder. Uh, the, 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 the quality of contact was up. The slider wasn't good. He had to resort to his changeup more just didn't know exactly what to do with his fastball. And now it seems like looking at his StatCast data with his fastball, it's like he's throwing it higher, like he's more comfortable working up in the zone. So maybe that's something that the Cubs had in mind that the White Sox just couldn't commit to while he was there. And that might be one thing. The other thing I'm thinking of that's like maybe less White Sox dependent and is maybe more just timing dependent is, you know, when he had the season that he had in 2020 with no fans there and, and coming out of a minor leagues and, and – putting himself on the map immediately and throwing himself in the high leverage situations when fans weren't there. You know, I wonder if that's a case where, you know, now having fans come back, having pressure of major league, uh, fan bases and, uh, you know, road fan bases, just having that kind of impact on a guy who didn't have the experience. I wonder if that makes it harder to throw pitches with conviction or, You know, if if there's some kind of an effect there to where, you know, 2021 was always going to be a little bit rough for him or stood the chance of being rough, especially if like his normal formula for success wasn't working. Like, I I wonder if that makes it harder to reinvent yourself knowing that like, oh, this game is riding on, especially since the White Sox uh, were counting on me and don't have a whole lot of guys to replace me in the seventh and eighth innings. So those are the two things. One is, you know, White Sox-based, like just not knowing how to use his fastball. Uh, and then the other one one is going from a team that was contending and using him in high leverage to a team that's, you know, more or less tanking, although they've, they've had some moments the Cubs have had since he's been there. Uh, but also just like... Yeah, the Cubs are in experimentation mode and trying guys out, auditioning guys for next year. And so it's a little more comfortable, a little bit more room for failure to be able to pitch in a different way than he's ever pitched with the White Sox. And, you know, so far succeeding with it.
1: Well, Muhammad, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Ronbo and Ronbo wrote to us. The White Sox headed into the offseason needing a solution in right field and they still need one. If Adam Engel can come back, who would he replace on the postseason roster? And would he start in right field?
2: Well, I think Engel's got something to prove. Like he's, um, I'm taking a look at, at the minor league box scores because I didn't see, you know, whether he'd been playing, but he hadn't had like the classic rehab trajectory with like, you know, partial games at DH starts later uh, success follows. Like he'd been starting more, but he hadn't been starting quite. Okay. Charlotte was off because of the, I think Jaguars, uh, some arrangement that they have because they share parking lots in Jacksonville. But yeah, uh, he hasn't been playing all that regularly. He's going to be coming back, but I think we're going to need to uh, see what he's all about. Kind of like, you know, the, the application of Kimbrel in the eighth inning and putting him in situations that might make you uncomfortable just to learn what he can offer. I think it's gonna be the same thing with angle to a certain degree. Although I imagine, you know, he'll have limitations with how often he plays based on uh, just how carefully he's had to have to be managed this year just because of all the leg injuries so what i'd hope when angle comes back is that he starts you know maybe not every day but every other day but also kind of starts like i guess independent of the pitcher like i don't want to see him face only lefties because part of the thing that made him special and uh, offered potential we hadn't seen was that he was hitting righties better uh, than we'd ever seen him hit them before so I think it would be kind of uh, a blow if the White Sox lost that ability, even if theoretically Brian Goodwin can take that uh, game from him, or you know, maybe Andrew Vaughn comes back and he's an okay matchup. Like I would like to see Angle against righties just to see if that skill has endured, you know, through all the time he's missed and you know whatever he might be losing from his legs. But uh, I, I think you know just given how much time he's missed, the multiple injured list since they can't quite count on him being part of the postseason mix you have to show that he can do it but if he somehow you know fingers crossed shows that he's basically the same guy he was around the injuries then i think you know he's probably more or less uh the starter in right field just based on offense and defense and then i think when it comes to the postseason roster um you know when you look at the roster right now i think you have you know Lito can replace like Mike Wright or whoever and I think you know Dallas Keuchel you know if the White Sox make the quote-unquote tough decision you know he should be left out and that's one roster spot then I think you know Danny Mendick will uh be out for Tim Anderson but there are some there's some room I think a little bit with the bullpen like especially they go down a starter and a low leverage reliever because at that point it doesn't really matter I think there's room to work him in that way uh but yeah I I think uh right now uh When it comes to the Ross, I think the other one who might be a little bit vulnerable is Gavin Sheets, just because he hasn't quite shown a whole lot yet. And I think if he's somebody who still has to figure out how to hit breaking balls and slow stuff and can just be pitched backwards in his power and neutralize, I still think I'd rather see Zach Collins on the bench as the backup catcher and somebody who can provide a good at bat from the left side instead of Gavin Sheets, if that opens up a spot for angle.
1: Well, we talked about Last week, when it came to Gavin Sheets, that conversation was central between Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets. Maybe as someone that's going to be DHing, if Aloy Jimenez is
2: getting more playing time in left field. Yeah, he came out hot, but I'm looking at his last uh, number of games. Yeah, just, you know, it's the same problem where he just gets the two strikes. (laughs) I think he's somebody who just doesn't punish uh, baseballs well enough earlier in counts to where it's almost like the, your mean Mercedes thing where he had the same problem. Like once he's two strikes, he just, his power is neutralized. He had the two strike swing and, and with sheets, I just think he has problems squaring up breaking stuff. So, and that's fair. Yeah. And he's a rookie, so like it's not his fault. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's not a. Uh, we're not damning him or condemning him and saying like, "Well, he's done." Like it was a nice run, Gabe <laughs> Sheets, but uh, see you in Charlotte or wherever next year. Uh, but just you know, for what the team needs for a postseason roster, which I think has a higher bar for clearance, I, I think that uh, you know he might be somebody. Who just might not be where he needs to be against major league pitching right now. Have you seen enough from Brian Goodwin to feel comfortable
1: going into the offseason that the White Sox do not need to address right field as they could go into 2022 with a platoon of Brian Goodwin and Adam Ingle?
2: No, I think Goodwin, you can improve over him. So I, I think we're seeing why he kind of is an itinerant lifestyle. Like he's fine. And he's somebody who like is a blessing for the White Sox and teams like the White Sox in an emergency like he's somebody I, I think that's just kind of the weird lot he's found himself in. Like he he's good at every or he's okay at everything, but he doesn't have a defined strength. Like he doesn't crush righties, he doesn't hit for a ton of power, he doesn't hit for a high average, he doesn't draw a ton of walks, he doesn't play a lockdown right field, but he can do everything okay. And I think when you're in a bind like the White Sox were, that's uh, a godsend and that's something you, you just you you really appreciate in real time but I think as you're planning and as you're projecting you can do better and I think you can limit yourself by having good win and is like basically like one win two win type ceiling uh, especially like say if Adam angles back I just think you know with his strengths and uh, you know having the so few weaknesses to have to address for the white sox lineup I think I'd rather see real energy expended in in solving it once and for all, if possible. Hmm.
1: Interesting. Well, Ronbo, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Brett and Brett wrote to us in the lead up to this past week's hall of fame introductions. I noticed some, I noticed several players wearing t-shirts advocating for the induction of Kurt Flood. I'm guessing this is because Marvin Miller was finally inducted, as he should have been long ago, and Flood is likely the most recognizable single player when it comes to the baseball labor movement. So my question is this. Is Kurt Flood worthy of enshrinement? His stats don't seem to warrant. His career fangraphs war is somewhere below 40 last time I checked, but is his historical significance enough to warrant an induction into the hall of fame
2: I think there might be an argument for it you know if the committees were constituted differently but seeing how long it took for Marvin Miller to get into the hall of fame as an executive just you know his impact on the game and yeah sports labor is enormous like it's there isn't one adjective that sums it up like you can read Lords of the Realm which I recommend doing just to learn how the the, the labor side of uh, baseball, the business side of baseball, just understanding just how decisions were made and how players used to operate <laughs> and everything had changed after he helped uh, build the union. Like, you know, when you have like Bowie Kuhn in the uh, Hall of Fame for being just completely ineffective commissioner, and he gets in, you have Bud Seelig like pretty much waved in when you're still wrestling, I think, with the uh, shortcomings of his era. And then you don't have you know you have Miller who just basically like liberated players into uh, the modern business era and you know, just changed the game so immensely you have to get in after he dies after uh, so much uh, you know kind of campaigning on his behalf and him not campaigning at all because he really didn't care if he were honored by the hall of fame because he knew that he was supposed to be antagonistic towards, uh, the power structure in baseball. So I think, you know, flood being somebody who didn't quite, you know, his career was short circuited because he challenged the reserve clause and lost. He was like, I think he would have gotten to the hall of fame as compiler, like his, uh, his stats like aren't that impressive. Like he was a gold glove outfielder. He, he was a league average hitter when it came to on base percentage, good hitter for average, good for, you know, around you know, 190 hits a season. Um, especially like in full seasons, he had some you know, partial seasons early on, but he had 1800 hits through age 31. So there was a chance he could have gotten to 3000 or close to it. And if he could have maintained that with plus defense, like he might've been able to get there. Uh, but I think just he didn't quite have the peak that you know, you associate with that kind of short career run. Like you don't have like the monster seasons like the uh, you know, where you lead the league in home runs year after year or lead the league in hits it year after year, win batting titles year after year. Uh, and for like the pitcher, like the equivalent of Sandy Koufax, just having that dominant peak that uh, makes you not have to add anything into your 30s if you don't want to. Uh, that's where I don't think he had it. And just, seeing baseball's resistance to honor anybody on uh, the labor side of the executive circles. Like, I think he's just going to be somebody who's on the outside looking in. Like, I think you're know, kind of, you know, in, in a different field, but Tommy John is the other one who has a similar argument for changing the game. Like, you know, with the Kurt flood, he challenged reserve clause, clause and loss, but he helped uh, break down that wall. Like he uh, just, you know, if not for him, I think it would have been a much harder fight for the players to get where they got. Uh, but when it comes to Tommy John, like he's somebody close to the Hall of Fame when it comes to performance. Again, a compiler, and he was able to compile, but that's because he went uh, underwent the dr- dramatic transformational surgery that bears his name. And he's somebody who had that kind of off-the-field contribution that has added so much to the game just by his willingness to take that risk and be that guinea pig <laughs> and, and maybe like if it not for him like maybe it takes longer for pitchers to get where they are and to be able to extend their careers the way, way that they have so uh, i think they're both on the outside looking in but i think you know tommy john would have the kind of argument stronger argument for having a combination of off-field and on-field uh you know legacy that is special <laughs> that uh can you know throw his numbers over the hump. And I think if Tommy John were able to get there, then I think you'd maybe have some kind of um, arguments or at least some kind of reconceptualization of the way plaques are conceived, the way they're thought, what stories they're intended to tell. And maybe that opens the door for a flood later floodgates, if you will.
1: Well, Brett, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions to us this week PO socks if you have a question or topic that you would like us to address in an upcoming episode of the Socks machine podcast you can follow us on Twitter We're at Sox machine you could follow me on Twitter at sox machine underscore Josh but the best way to get your questions answered is to support us on patreon.com sox machine where we have several different tiers of support both monthly and annual plans. Uh, So if you are a monthly subscriber now, and if you always wanted to upgrade to an annual subscription, you can do so, and you save 9%. And our subscribers get exclusive content, like bonus PO Socks questions that Jim and I answer. Uh, Also, the uh, Farm System Fortnite pieces that Jim has been writing as well. Uh, And you get an ad-free version of the podcast and website. And when we have new Socks Machine swag, you get the first opportunity To get that swag and how are the pint glasses jim
2: they are fantastic still uh with me going to chicago i'm going to be um doing baseball stuff in chicago and and, and family stuff but when i come back that's when i'll start going through them uh sending them out to the new ten dollar uh annual supporters uh at the 10 war tier i'll be sending them out and then uh once i send them out i will be listing them for sale like a a limited supply on sale in the socks machine store
1: and i have to say seeing the socks machine cap in public warms my heart and it looks great and i it again i'm very excited to see a lot of folks wear them especially at
2: white Sox games so thank you guys so much for doing so And while we're thinking people uh i'd like to thank a couple of recent supporters nick jackson and brian gosch thanks for signing up and along those lines uh because uh i don't want to forget the people who were there from pretty much day one uh shout out to eric johnson and eric miller who signed up on january 1st 2018 yes thank you
1: erics wow january 1st 2018 so this upcoming january they're going to be patreon supporters for four seasons yes awesome thank you guys so much and again your support helps us greatly continue to run socksmachine.com and the podcast. We're going to be very busy come the postseason. Hopefully, knock on wood, maybe punch a box of Cheez Its. Uh, that it's a deep postseason run for the Chicago White Sox. And yeah, we have many podcasts to be doing come October and the upcoming off season. and your guys' support greatly helps us out so again if you like our work and you want more go to patreon.com slash socks machine and sign up today that will do it for this episode of the socks machine podcast thank you guys so much for listening there will not be a socks machine live this week again i am going on vacation replacing socks machine live will just be an extra episode of the white Sox wake-up call so you will have a new episode each morning Uh, for the rest of the week. So do not worry if you don't see Sox Machine live. It is a planned absence. You will get another White Sox wake-up call later this week. The Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, part of the Blue Wire podcast network, and you're home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.